Hey, before we get started, I just need to share a couple things with you as a church. And uh, uh, we, uh, we, the, the, the Bible describes the church as a body, and the Bible describes the church as a family, right? These are two of the primary ways that, that the church is described. And what that means is it's really about relationships. And uh, I don't know about your family, but in my family, we all have different roles. We all have different things that we do. Uh, but ultimately, we, we work together and we serve together and we bear one another's burdens. Uh, and right now, as a church, uh, one of the burdens that our family has is in our nursery. And we've got a number of spots that are open. Now, here's the deal. Before, I'm, I'm not putting the guilt trip on you because, listen, not everybody's role is to serve in the nursery. Uh, but it is some of our roles for sure. And so we've got a toddler's life group. That's our two and three-year-olds. Uh, it's about six or eight, eight kids. Um, Bailey is doing an incredible job preparing volunteers to lead that. Um, but we need somebody to commit to it. And here's what I know you hear when I say that. You hear, if I commit, I'm stuck in the nursery for the rest of my life. And that is not what we mean at all. We need somebody to commit for a time, for a period of time, six months, a year, uh, Bailey's having to fill in a lot back there by herself. We've got a number of people that are serving, and we are thankful for them. We also have an opportunity to serve in children's church once a month on the fourth Sunday of each month. Uh, it's 30 minutes, give or take. I, I speak a lot less than my father did, okay? So it's actually shorter than it used to be. Uh, but there's a, a Bible teaching, and there's activity, and lots of fun. So if that's something um, that you are capable and passionate about. We need you to step up and serve our family uh, in that way. Uh, that's, that's part of what it means to, be, to belong to a church. And so the nursery is an important part of our interaction with guests and new families. Uh, those are the first faces that people see. Uh, and so one of the important ways we can serve our church is by being back there. Uh, my wife is back there right now. I would be, but I, you know, so. Uh, and then second, so if, if just be thinking about that. If that's somewhere you can serve and somewhere you can commit to, please come talk to me at the end. Uh, and then second, we're doing this church checkup survey. We talked about it a little bit last week in family conference. Uh, and this is just a chance for the church to give feedback on things that are going well, healthy in our church, and things that you see that maybe are not so healthy, things that are not uh, going well. And uh, we'll be talking about the results of those in the coming months. So like Will said, you can grab one in the Welcome Center and fill it out for the next few weeks. Um, but we would love to get your feedback on that, okay? That's all I got. We are in the book of Luke. You can turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 3, uh, and we're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. And today we're looking at the ministry and the teaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not... Uh, uh, that's what we call him because one of the primary things that he was doing in his ministry was baptizing. Uh, but more than that, more than the baptism, John's message was, was about repentance. Repentance. That's a very church word, very big, important church word. We shouldn't stray away from it. But repentance is what John is going to talk about. And specifically, what he's going to talk about is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so that's really what we're going to think about today as we read what John does, the keeping with repentance. Repentance is not just this thing that happened one time when I was 12 or this thing that happened one time when I felt some emotion in that church service, right? Repentance is a lifestyle for all Christians. 
Repentance is an ongoing spirit, an ongoing attitude of, I am not right before you, God, and I must turn back to you. And that happens over and over and over in our life. And so that's what we're going to talk about, and that's what we're going to see today in John the Baptist's ministry, is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So let's look at it. John, uh, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. That's out near Midland, if you don't know. <laughs> Verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse seven, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what, what then shall we do? Verse 11. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he, speaking of Christ, who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to him all, that he locked up John in prison. Let me pray. God, I pray this morning. First, God, I just come and God, thank you for forgiveness. God, thank you that, that there is no sin that stands in the way anymore of those of us who are in Christ. 
There is no separation. There is no gap, God. But because of what Jesus has done, the one mightier than John, God, the one who died on the cross and rose again, God, we can have forgiveness of sins. God, and we thank you for that. God, we, we are recipients of your grace and your mercy, and we stand thankful this morning, God. God, I pray this morning, God, that we too would bear fruit in keeping with repentance, God. We would continue to turn from sin, to turn from its, from its pull and from its, from its lust and from its desire to rule over us, God. We would turn from it and we would turn back to you over and over, God. God, may we no longer submit to a yoke of slavery and sin, God, but may we walk in the freedom that you have purchased on the cross, God. God, I pray this morning uh, for each one of us, God, that repentance would be a, a characteristic that is dominant in our life. God, that we would be quick to own our sin and to turn from it and to turn to you, God, because there is forgiveness. And so we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for this good news that's available for all. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and Luke gives us, he lists a lot of names. Luke is very specific. Luke is very uh, detailed, and I'm not, I struggled pronouncing this morning, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about these rulers and what they did and where they lived. We know some of them, uh, and some of them are a little less familiar, but Luke is dating this time to about 28, 29 A.D., and so we know that John, uh, the son of Zechariah, and we know that Jesus, the son of Mary, who he's just talked about, are almost 30 years of age, somewhere in that range. And they have lived their life in really seclusion up to this point. We know John spent most of his time in the wilderness. Uh, his parents were old. He may have grown up as an orphan. He may have grown up by himself. And Jesus had spent his time in Nazareth, which is the backwoods of Israel, okay? Uh, and they, nobody knows them. They're not anybody important. But it says that at this time, that John was in the wilderness doing his ministry. And this had been prophesied that, that there would be one, and, and we're going to look at it in just a sec, there would be one who would come before the Messiah and he would prepare his way, right? And he would be doing it in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, if... Uh, it is a barren place, and we can't even fathom this here because a pine tree grows if you leave it alone for about three minutes here in East Texas, right? But wilderness is just this barren, barren place, and John is out there. And the wilderness is such an important theme in, in all of Scripture. Think about it with me. Where else have we seen wilderness in the Bible? Where else has wilderness been a part of God's plan? Well, think about Exodus, right? The Exodus from Egypt in slavery, the, the wilderness is where they left. They left their slavery in Egypt, and they went to the wilderness. And, and they're on their way to the promised land, but what happens? Because of their disobedience, they spend 40 years in the wilderness, right? So the wilderness becomes this picture of, of sin and rebellion, right? And so they're out there. But then what happens? One day, after 40 years passes, they get to do what? They cross through the Jordan, and they enter into the promised land where there's life, and there's uh, freedom, and there's a blessing abundant, right? Think about that picture. They're in their sin in the wilderness. They pass through the Jordan into the promised land. 
And now John is out in the wilderness, and he's going to be telling people, you need to repent. You need to turn back to God. And what's he doing? It says that he's out there baptizing them where? In the Jordan River, right? And if you are repenting and you're being baptized, you're going to find what? Life. Forgiveness, right? This is the pattern that's playing out in John's ministry. That when we repent from our sin and we turn to God, we can have forgiveness of sin. And this is what he's out there proclaiming in verse 3. He's saying, uh, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is different than our baptism, right? Because what is our baptism a picture of today? It's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, right? Has that happened yet? No, right? So they don't have this in mind. That's not what they're doing in baptism. In, in Jewish circles, uh, there were basically the, our best guess at where this comes from. One, when they went to the temple, they had to do washings. They had to physically wash their body so they could be clean and enter into the temple. It was a picture, a physical picture of something, a spiritual reality. But also, if Gentiles wanted to convert to Judaism, if non-Jews wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to do a baptism. So they would fully dunk them in the water, right? And they would, it was a picture of uh, being cleansed, similar to ours. And I think that's what the picture is here, that these people are going out to the wilderness because they have had a change of heart, because they have repented, and they want to come back to God. And they're saying, I'm as bad, I need forgiveness just like these Gentiles do, right? I'm worse, and if not more worse, that's not correct English, but I'm worse than even the worst of the Gentiles, Now, it says that this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. I want to make it clear. He does not mean that because they were baptized, therefore they got forgiveness. And that's what we believe today, too. This water up there, if you ever see it, it's brown. It's probably cancerous because it's Huntington water, right? Right? There's, There's issues with this water. There's nothing magic about this water. It makes you more dirty going through it than when you started, okay? That, that's, baptism does nothing to save you. It doesn't, it's like nothing we do today when we take these elements, when we eat this bread, this bread, there's nothing magic about it. What is going to save us? Only Christ. Faith in him. Belief in him. He's the only one who can give us forgiveness. And being dunked in the Jordan River, taking the bread, all that sort of stuff is not how we get forgiveness. This baptism was one of the things that they were doing as a fruit of their repentance. Now, we've used this word a lot, repentance. Uh, And repentance means a number of things, but one of the easiest ways to think about it is a turn. A change of mind, but a turn. A turn from sin to God. It's a change of direction. And that's what has happened. These people are coming out, and they're coming out to symbolize, to memorialize what has happened in their hearts. That they have repented, they have turned back to God in their hearts, and now they want others to know about it. And so John is out there, and and look at verse 4. 
It says, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We don't have time to look at each one of these. And yes, there's a physical thing that, that, that literally John is preparing the way as, as we would prepare a road. We make it straight. We make it wide. We make it uh, accessible so that people can cross, right? But there's a spiritual aspect of it too, right? That the, every uh, mountain shall be brought down, right? The, the proud shall be humbled. And everyone who is low and, and <laughs> broken in their sin will be lifted up. Those who are crooked, who are off the road, will be brought back to the straight and narrow. There's, there's all kinds of symbolism here. And what he's doing is he's saying, my ministry is to call us to repentance because the Messiah is coming. The king is on his way and I'm making the road ready. Quit straying from the Lord. Quit turning to sin. Quit going all these other ways. John's purpose and his fulfillment as the one who's preparing the way is to call them to repentance. And here's how he does it. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like, I'm not going to call you brood of vipers. Right? It's probably not a good church growth strategy to call you brood of vipers. But John's not trying to grow a church. John is trying to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's trying to call them to repentance. And he calls them brood of vipers. He's saying you're snakes. And, and the way you're living and the way you're teaching is killing other people. You are not sons of God. You are sons of the enemy, the serpent. Right? He is putting them in their place. And I think the reason is because they are coming out to be baptized, but their motives are not right. It is insincere, it's shallow, it's superficial, right? There's all kinds of, of messed up motives. And, and the truth is they have not really repented in their heart. They're coming out to do the show. They're coming out to, to participate in the movement, to be a part of the big exciting new thing of John out in the wilderness. And he's saying, you brood of vipers. Your motive is not right before God. This is just for show, and it is not real. He says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he's going to use this phrase of bearing fruit. We talked about it in our life group this morning from Colossians a little bit. Bearing fruit, uh, this picture is that it's like a tree, right? That's the imagery, right? Have anybody tried to plant fruit trees around here? I've had zero success. How long does it take for, for fruit to grow on a fruit tree around here? Years, right? It takes years. If you do it really well, it takes years, right? Bear fruit. He's not talking about some emotional experience. He's not talking about some 
really cool new tradition that we have of baptizing in the Jordan. He's not talking about any of that. He's saying, you've got to have a heart change. Now bear fruit. Keep at this for a long time. He's challenging. Don't just come up and proclaim that you're, you're right with God and all this stuff. No, he says, live it out. Have your life prove that there really has been a heart change, right? Our lives will prove what really is in our hearts, right? Our actions, our attitudes, our, all that sort of stuff, it will reveal in time. You give it enough time, you watch enough, our actions will reveal what really is in our hearts. And John knows that these religious people in this scenario, that they are snakes. They are not out. Now, I love the phrase that he says, and I think it's so important for us. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So many times we talk about repentance in, 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 in a sense of like, when someone is saved, you must repent and be saved. You must repent and be baptized. And that is true. That is biblical. But what John says here is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not this one-time emotional decision you made at the front or at your house or whatever. Repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is a heart attitude that I know I am not right before God. And I know that I must turn to him over and over and over again. This is true in my marriage. I have to repent and return from whatever that I'm not doing towards Maddie. But because I love her, I will continue to return. I will continue to work on it. I will continue to try to get better. This is true in our relationships. If we just cut somebody out because they're toxic and we don't work on it, we have no long-lasting friends. We must turn. We must forgive. We must keep coming back too. And that's true in our relationship with God. Right? If we just bank on this 12-year-old experience we had, but our life and our heart is not full of repentance before God, he's saying, no, you're, you're a snake. You're not really a son of God. Verse 8, he says, he says, do not even begin to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. He could hear their, their, uh, their rebuttal. He could hear their defense to say, no, but we're Jews. We're of the tribe of Abraham. We're of the tribe of so-and-so, right? I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I've got all these religious things to point to. He says, that does not matter. He says, who your daddy is, who your religion is, who all that sort of stuff does not matter when you stand before God because it'll be you and him, not your dad. It'll be you and him. And he says, is your heart right? Have you bared born fruit in keeping with repentance. Man, so many people do this today. They think because their grandma, their grandpa was saved and had this vibrant faith that they can rely on that. Let me tell you, when you stand before the God of the universe, he will not ask you what your grandma believed. He will not ask you what your grandpa believed. He will ask you, do you believe in my son? And have you, has your life been changed by him? In verse 9, John says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says the only use 
for a tree that is not bearing good fruit is firewood. And this is a clear as day picture for us of hell, of an eternity separated from God. That if our life does not bear fruit because of the heart change that has happened, then one day we will spend eternity separated from God. And as John proclaimed this message, what happened is, is people realized they were wrong. People wanted to turn from their sin. People wanted to have a change of heart. People wanted to love God. And so look at verse 10. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Right? These people are, have genuine motives. They want to follow God. They want to walk in his ways. And they're like, okay, how do, how do I live this out? How is my heart change supposed to affect my life? And, and John gives them very clear instructions. Uh, these, are not, these are not the things that save these people. These are how they live because they are saved. And he tells, uh, first he addresses the crowds in, in 10 and 11. And he, he speaks of generosity. He says, whoever now has excess, whoever has an abundance is meant to give. Like, if we really have a heart change, we're not stingy people. We're generous. And I'm not, this is not a pitch for you to tie. Like, this is, I, I don't care. Don't, do, well, don't, don't give today because I said this. He, he says repentant people are generous people because they know that their stuff is not their own. They know that, that, that others are in need. He looks at the tax collectors in verse 12. The tax collectors are despised, right? Because they have sold out their people to work for their oppressor, the Romans, and they are taking advantage of that situation often. Tax collectors have this terrible stigma. And he looks at the tax collectors and he doesn't tell them, you need to resign and come back to the people of Israel. What does he tell them? He says, be honest, be fair. How you treat people matters. So repentant people are honest people. Repentant people are fair each one of these has to do with how we treat one another. Do you see that? Our repentance is not just this, yeah, it starts private. It starts between us and God, but it affects how we treat one another, how we're kind, how we use our words, how we interact in business dealings, how we, all sorts of things. Do you see it? Then he looks at the soldiers. The soldiers go, what do we do? These are, these are people who have also sold out Israel and have gone to work for Herod or someone else, uh, one of these other tetrarchs. And he tells them to be fair. He tells them, don't extort, don't threaten, don't be content. Repentant people are to be fair and gentle. And so what he's saying, he's just working out a few examples here. I'm sure he addressed lots of other people in lots of other situations. But he says, the way you treat one another will prove whether there really has been repentance in your heart. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's ministry and his time in the wilderness is so great that people are starting to go, man, is, is this our guy? Like, is this him? 
Is he the one that's here to save us? Is he the one that's going to sit on the throne of David forever? Is he the one that's going to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? And John is very quick to dissuade them, right? John is highlighting that I am not the Christ. I am not the one you are looking for. I'm just here to point you to him, right? He's highlighting his limits. He says, I just baptized with water. Like, I, we're just in the Jordan, guys. But the one who is coming, he's doing something so much greater. He's going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, let me be very clear here. This verse has been very misused in modern and historical Christianity. This is not one baptism of fire and, and the Holy Spirit for believers. What does fire in this context refer to? Hell, right? He says every tree that does not bear fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire, right? And he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the wheat and the chaff. And the wheat he's going to gather into the barn, but the chaff he's going to throw into the what? The fire. So this baptism of fire is not some euphoric experience or some emotional passion like, okay, I've, got, I've, I've been saved, but man, I just need some fire. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. And you don't want fire. Fire burns, and fire destroys, and fire is for cleansing sin. You want Jesus to take your fire, not you, right? But he says that these, he, the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Holy Spirit is for believers. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is being filled with, covered with, immersed with, consumed by however you want to say it, the Holy Spirit. And let me be very clear what we believe. This baptism happens at conversion. It is not something you have to seek after, although God can pour out his spirit in unusual ways. But what Ephesians 1 tells us, look at it. Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believed, like you were sealed, and he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you believe in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. These are not separate things. These are not things to seek after. This is not something else. The Holy Spirit fills all believers at the moment of generation, at the moment of regeneration of salvation, right? We cannot believe unless God does something miraculous in our hearts. Those of us who believe know that, right? Those of us who have seen uh, hard-hearted people come to faith know that, right? That we need the Holy Spirit in us to believe. But the baptism of fire, this is for those snakes, those who are still in their sin, this fire is not a reference to the tongues of fire at Pentecost. It has not happened. Fire in this context is judgment, is wrath, is unquenchable. And he says, 
That the one who is coming, verse 17, he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. We don't, we don't use winnowing forks anymore. Maybe some of you do. But he's throwing the wheat that's been crushed into the air. And the chaff is blowing away. And the heavy wheat is falling down. And he's collecting the wheat, which is of use. And he's letting the chaff go away. And because they're so poor, they're burning it for fuel. Right? That's the picture here. Jesus is coming and he is separating the wheat from the chaff. The forgiven from the unforgiven. The repentant from the non-repentant. It's a very clear line. There is no gray in this. You are either in the kingdom of light or you are in the kingdom of darkness. You are either repentant or you are not repentant. There is no in-between. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations... He preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to him all, that he locked up John in prison. I don't know about you, this may not feel like good news. It may not feel like good news to be told that there's a line and you're either on this side of it or you're not. You're either going to spend eternity in heaven or you're going to spend eternity in hell. There is no in-between. You're either repentant of your sins or you're not. That this is not popular in our day and it wasn't popular in his day. Herod hated what John had to say. And he put him in prison and he beheaded him eventually because of it. And this message of repent, turn, to, to change your old ways and just be true to your whatever, that's not popular. That's not popular in our day. It's not probably going to lead to my beheading today. I'm not worried about that. But many would say that saying you must repent from your sin is hate speech today. But friend, I love you enough to tell you that this is the good news. That if we do repent... There is forgiveness available, right? It feels heavy because we get called out on the truth of our sin. But it also feels freeing because we know that there is a way out of that. We don't have to stay there. Now, repentance doesn't mean that you and I will never struggle with sin. That's, that's, that's not true. Anybody who ever tried to walk with God for a long time realize that's not true? Amen. Right? It doesn't mean that we will be perfect, but our disposition and our attitude is that we will continue to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. We will carry a spirit of repentance with us to the end. And friend, let me encourage you. One day in heaven, we will no longer have to repent from sin. One day we will be made fully right because of what Jesus has done, and there will be no more repentance in heaven. We will stand with our maker, fully known and fully knowing him, and there will be no shame. There will be no guilt, because it all has been burned in the unquenchable fire. This is the message that John preaches out in the wilderness, and it points us to Christ, as all good messages do, right? That there is forgiveness of sins. Uh, Jesus told us, to do this in remembrance of him. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning uh, to finish our time together. 
But let me pray before we do, and then we'll, we'll have some deacons come forward to help. God, we thank you for the truth, God, and we thank you for the good news that uh, there is forgiveness. That though we are sinners, though we have rejected you time and again, God, if we will turn to you and look to Christ, we can be saved. God, and I know many in this room today have experienced that. And so we, we come together this morning and we are going to celebrate what you have done in the cross, God. And we're going to be thankful and we're going to remember all that you have done uh, by taking the Lord's Supper, God. I pray this week, God, for any who don't know you, God, who are uh, a snake, God, who are, have false motives, God, who, whose heart has not been changed, any who are uh, chaff, God, I pray that they would turn from their sin and they would turn to Christ, God, and be saved. Uh, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.